Welcome to the PT Rebels podcast. This is the place to learn how you can become a PT Rebel and take charge of your own health and wellness. We will help you find answers to your questions about pain, injury, and the path towards healing in the most efficient and effective way possible. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Fick. On today's episode, I sit down with my friend, Dr. Jamie Moore, owner and founder of Rehabletics in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. We will be discussing modern day sports physical therapy, as well as the athletes that we serve. Today, we will be diving into some of the hottest topics surrounding sports physical therapy. We will discuss what you should look for in a sports physical therapist and some of the key ways that you can work to mitigate injury risk and optimize your athletic performance. Dr. Jamie Moore is the founder and owner of Rehabletics in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Jamie is a doctor of physical therapy and certified athletic trainer. He is a movement expert and specializes in athletic pain, injury prevention, orthopedic and musculoskeletal injuries, as well as sports performance integration and return to sport. Since 2013, he has worked in clinical orthopedic sports performance and on the sidelines treating a wide variety and range of athletes. In addition to being a treating physical therapist, Jamie is an international educator, husband, and father. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you on today. Super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I am beyond pumped to, to chat with you today. Awesome. Jamie, I just uh, wanted to see if you could just tell us first more about yourself, your background, your experience. Tell us all about Rehabletics and the vision yeah. of your practice. Yeah. So I would say probably similar to most PTs out there. I, I had an injury in high school, had an amazing, amazing recovery process while in high school. It was pretty pretty great. I enjoyed it. Came back, got to finish my senior year. I was a hockey player and lacrosse player. So I got to finish my hockey season and then play my whole lacrosse season. So that was, that was pretty amazing. Uh, took my, to take my LeBron James reference, I took my talents to Hamden, Connecticut, a small school called Quinnipiac University, where I'd spent the next seven years in the AT&PT programs. Amazing opportunities. And, and I'm super blessed for everything that, that they've given me. I uh, got to work on the sidelines with some pretty Pretty cool experiences. Got to work with a multitude of the sports at Quinnipiac where I got to kind of hone in and understand the athlete as an athletic trainer, I think. Obviously, the skill sets, the skill sets can be similar, uh, but really got to hone in and understand the backside of the athlete being a student athletic trainer. And then finished up at Yale University as their, like, I guess, rehab assistant with the football team for spring football, which was pretty cool. Then graduated to PT school and did your typical orthopedic outpatient clinical rotations. I was pretty not uh, enthused by it, which would suck because I knew that, that was the direction that I was going to go as a physical therapist. And then I, I was really blessed with the opportunity to go down to Exos in Frisco, Texas as a, a student for my last clinical rotation. I think like every bright-eyed student thought I'd have this really cool clinical experience and they would just offer me a job on the spot and I was moving to Texas and obviously that didn't happen. So I moved back up to, to New York and, and I spent two years working in New York in your typical outpatient setting, uh, a little bit of sports like any other clinic, typical mill setting, right? Two, three, four, an hour as it progressed and insurance rates got worse. And then I was really, once again, blessed with the opportunity to go back down to Frisco, Texas and join the team at Exos where I spent the better part of four years really working in the private side of professional athletics. Got to work alongside amazing athletes, 
working in preparation for the NFL Combine, NBA Combine, MLB offseason. I had some UFC athletes, some National Women's Soccer League, some LPGA, NHL. I really got to do a lot down there. Obviously, we all got struck in 2020 by COVID, which actually put me out of a job. I was sitting on my couch in Texas waiting to get have the opportunity to go back to work. Uh, and at that, at that point, I kind of had to self-reflect on like what I was doing. Like, what was I working for? What was I working towards? And with everything that happened, I didn't want to be so far from my family. So my wife and I did our, our due diligence and we knew we wanted to move back up to the Northeast. So we kind of started to look at different cities. And, and what I found was that there was a little bit of a void and a little bit of a gap in the greater Philadelphia area, the suburbs of Philadelphia. So that's where I currently am now. My wife and I moved back to the Northeast in the middle of 2021. And that's where what is now Rehabletics was born. And I started my company, I started Rehabletics for the sole purpose of being able to provide an opportunity for everyone to get the kind of care that professional athletes only get. I think as we see the, the youth development athletic world, the weekend warrior, the recreational athlete, the active individual, for some reason, and, and we are those people, like I am that person, we don't get access to the quality and style of care that professional athletes get. And I never understood why. It didn't make sense to me. So that's what I set out to make my mission, at least one of my missions. In the local area, that is, that is the sole basis of what Rehabletics is. I tell people when I talk to people on the phone, when I meet people, you're going to get the exact same care that my professional athletes that are coming in right before you or right after are getting. We don't offer any different. We don't offer any upcharge, no upsell. It is what it is. You get what you get. I mean, everyone gets treated the same. So that's really what I wanted to do and what I have set out to do. And so far, we've, I've been in business for two years and we have been just doing just fine and on that track. And it has been great to be able to really witness the effect and the change that we can have in the youth athlete and the college athlete and the weekend warrior by implementing these same ideas, the same global approaches that traditionally we don't get access to. That's really so similar to the mission and vision of FIC PT. And so I was, I'm so excited to talk with you about this today because really that's why I started our practice. You know, we see active adults and athletes of all ages, and I want them to have the same experience, no matter if, you know, they're a youth athlete, collegiate or professional athlete. So I really, that really resonates with me. And I think we have very similar treatment styles. Um, I'm actually from Texas, just north of Frisco. So I didn't know that you were in Frisco for four years. That's pretty cool. And I highly respect EXOS. I uh, really like their education model and their treatment strategies and how they assess and treat not only athletes, but just active adults and individuals as a whole. And so we really strive to apply a lot of those principles as well in our practice here. So thank you for sharing your story. I think that will really resonate with a lot of our listeners today. Yeah. So Jamie, when we're talking about sports physical therapy, we hear a lot of practices and and companies that say they do sports physical therapy or they're sports physical therapists. But I would like for you to help define what is sports physical therapy and what makes someone a good sports physical therapist? 
So I will start by saying that whatever the, whatever the APTA says is not the definition of sports physical therapy. <laughs> right. I think the hard part is as we're seeing this trend and before I give you my answer, what frustrates me is I'm watching the trend of what was sport, this trend of sports medicine now become the trend of sport physical therapy. What do I mean by that? Sports medicine became an unfortunate blanket term over time that everyone just threw it on every single brand, every single clinic to the fact that it was diluted and it doesn't mean anything anymore. It basically means orthopedics. Like <laughs> sports medicine now means sports like orthopedics, which sucks because it's not what it is. And high level sports medicine is, is very different than just traditional outpatient orthopedics. I think it ends up, that ends up being like a, a grab at marketing and all that kind of stuff. So unfortunately, I think sports physical therapy is trending in that direction, which sucks. To me, sports physical therapy is utilizing the application and knowledge of human movement with regards to sport as it pertains to the rehabilitation process, which I, and there's, I, to me, I don't think that there needs to be anything wrong with being an outpatient orthopedics physical therapist that works with athletes. I think there is a difference between sports physical therapy and that. In my head, we need to have a true understanding of the demands, the stresses, and the needs that the human body is going to take with regards to sport. When we look at the different kinds of sports, each one has different kinds of demands. It's not just saying that I played hockey growing up, so I am a good physical therapist for hockey players. I think there's a lot of knowledge and background that needs to go into that and understanding of the three-dimensional rotational movement with all joints of the body, right? To be able to say that I'm like an expert in hockey. So, and I'm not saying I am, but to me, sports physical therapy is really like the, the deeper understanding of that. And what frustrates me is obviously now we, we have, we have the SCS, which is a great, what great clinical asset doesn't mean that you're like an expert in sports. It means that you either did a residency or it means you passed an exam and I respect it. But I think to me, a sports physical therapist really is somebody that, that understands the needs and the biomechanical needs and the force needs for an athlete, somebody that is doing X or Y. We need to be able to break down for the client why this lack of dorsiflexion is so important and how this lack of dorsiflexion is leading to the issues that are going on in your hip which is why you're struggling swinging a golf club. If you're looking at an athlete with, you know, a very inexperienced eye, I don't know that you're as capable or as skilled yet in being able to determine what those movement deficiencies are and how that plays in. So I think it takes a lot of time. I think it takes a lot of dedication and commitment to the craft of physical therapy in order to be able to break down those things and spending time with mentors, I think is really important. And in order someone that's really skilled at assessing biomechanics or assessing the needs of those different sports, you know, I've spent a lot of time in my career talking with coaches and watching sports and slowing down sports, whether it's running football, if I'm looking at a recording, fast forwarding, zooming, reversing, just looking at all the dimensions of that, of the movements and what the athletes required to do and understanding the importance of how their deficiencies relate. So I think you're right. I think it takes a lot of time and dedication. And, you know, I think that our profession has developed in the, in a way that is good in the terms of like residencies and certifications, but 
I think unless you really dive in and, and, and make the commitment and take the time that it takes to really be good at assessing these types of movements and being able to communicate that with the athlete as well and transfer what we're seeing as movement deficiencies into specific movement tasks and skills related to what they have to do on the field or on the court. I think that's what makes a really good sports physical therapist. And I think that time and dedication to that is what a good sports physical therapist is willing to do. So and what I think is really hard, right, is we live in a society that everyone wants everything right now. Like everyone's instantaneous. And what I what I used to take students, I don't take students anymore. I'm working on the opportunity to have students in the future through an online platform and courses and things like that. What I think is hard is everyone wants it right now. Everyone is right out of school and I want to do this. And, and it's like, it's okay to let it take time. Like you're not going to, you're, we're going to do this for a long time. One of my mentors said to me early on in my career, you're going to be a physical therapist for the next 40 years. Like it's okay that you're not that good at your job right now. Like if you're in year 30 and you're not good at your job, different story. So I think like it needs to be okay with us that you might not be at the level of a sports physical therapist yet, right? Like not everybody is Tom Brady. Not every quarterback in the NFL gets paid $50 million a year. I just saw a statistic yesterday. Brock Purdy is the 80th highest paid quarterback in the NFL, right? He's a starter, but he's just not there yet. And he needs to be where he is right now to be able to get to potentially that space. And I think the same thing goes for us. We just look at it differently. It's okay to be a student. It's okay to be learning. It's okay to be just a generalist. It's okay to be an orthopedic person and then transition yourself into higher understanding of sports versus just saying like, I'm a sports physical therapist and, and utilizing the term. Totally agree. Uh, what types of athletes do you treat in your practice and what is your approach to patient care in your practice? So I, I treat all athletes, but my preference is in, I would say my preference is in the rotational aspect of linear athletes. So my expertise and what I like my bread and butter of what I've done for the last six years really relies on football. I've obviously worked a lot with basketball. I've worked a lot with baseball, with golfers, but football is kind of what I have spent a lot of time investing my efforts into and understanding the game of football. I didn't play football growing up, which is the funny part, but really trying to understand and how we utilize the rotational component. To every athlete for me is probably like number one and everything we do in life, even with regards to like our gait, right? Like just being able to walk is rotational in itself. Even though it looks linear, it looks sagittal. It is in fact rotational. There is triplanar activity at multiple joints. So I like to make sure that I am addressing and my approach to treating humans, regardless of what they do, is making sure that we always address the rotational component at every single joint at all times. So there's always some kind of rotational emphasis or anti-rotational emphasis to almost everything that we do because that's life. And I try to replicate forces of life into everything that we are working on within the clinical setting versus your traditional, which I probably get some slack for your traditional like man-made movements and very sagittal movements, very like non-normal. Yes, squats are normal, but like nobody in life is really just squatting with a bar, right? They're doing something different. So I've actually, I don't really squat, traditional squat with many people anymore. I kind of vary things up. But my approach is very, which is it's interesting to watch how it's progressed, right? I think all of us progress through our career. My approach is outside of who I am normally, very detailed. 
and I tried to make things as objective as possible. And I didn't used to do that for the sole purpose of, I just, I was sick of guessing and sick of pretending that I was getting the outcomes that I wanted to get versus actually ensuring that I am. And if I'm not, which happens most of the time to physical therapists, we need to know that we're not actually getting the outcomes that we're looking for. So often we're just like, oh yeah, like do this step up. It's going to help your, you know, help your low back because it's going to strengthen your glute med. Like, but if we don't retest the glute med strength and we don't have an isolate, like a true test, the four out of five is a subjective test in my opinion. If we don't have a true ability to test that. Like, how do we know that the outcomes are that we want? We're only regarding pain as like our outcome. So for us, I try to be as detailed as possible and I'm very holistic. I'm very big picture. I, I believe that when someone comes in with an injury in one place, 10 out of 10 times, it doesn't come from that place. It stems from somewhere else. This is just like the area that we're experiencing the symptomatic problem, but it's not the root cause of the issue. And so to truly be able to help somebody, I need to know that if someone's coming in with low back pain, they probably have some kind of limitations in their hips and probably have some kind of limitations in their ankles and potentially in their spine and, and their neck. So yeah, if I'm doing them a disservice, if I'm not looking at that. So I try to be as big picture as possible while also being strategic because obviously we don't have all the time in the world. Right. I think that's what makes you really good and successful sports physical therapist because you are looking at the whole person. And I agree oftentimes or most, most times where uh, their pain is, isn't necessarily where the pain generator is. So we need to look hunt around and look for the, the movement deficiencies related to that. You know, we started using the force plates and the hand dynamometers just to be able to objectively quantify their ability to produce force, to absorb forces. It motivates the athletes. I had an athlete yesterday who was, you know, had about 25 to 30% asymmetry with eccentric forces and landing. And concentric was pretty good, but eccentric, he just wasn't willing or he wasn't able to really absorb forces as well on his left side. But he was so motivated by seeing the graphs and the pictures and the numbers. He's like, I want to do it again. I want to do it. And how do I get better? And so, you know, not only does it help us give us information in terms of their asymmetries, but also is very motivating to the patients and the clients and it helps the, you know, parents or coaches as well, see that and be able to understand like what their deficiencies are related to their sport. Yeah. I mean, I think if, if we're working with athletes, right, like athletes are objectively motivated as humans, like that is, it is sport. Like the only outcome is winning. And the only way to win is by objectively doing better than the person you're competing against. So without utilizing those in sports, what, why not use that to our advantage? Exactly. Completely agree. In your practice, what's your care model? Do you have is it more of a one-on-one -on -one approach? How much time are you able to spend with patients and, and what value do you place in that? So it, it's been, it's been interesting to watch, right? I think my, our model right now is one-on-one -on -one for an hour. I like to spend one-on-one -on -one time with people um, for a lot of reasons. I think being able to develop a therapeutic alliance, being able to develop trust, being able to develop understanding and being able to create a relationship outside of like, just moving, right? I think that's half of the battle with what we do is people have to enjoy spending time with us. Is it the most ideal model? To be honest, no, it's not. In my honest opinion, like if, if things were as perfect as they could be, I, I think probably 90 minutes, 75 to 90 minutes is probably the ideal sweet spot to be able to have somebody. The reason being is 
there's only so much things that there's only so much that we could do in 60 minutes that I never feel satisfied with what I can achieve with somebody. If I have more time and I know that I can achieve those things, I think the outcomes are better, right? And the problem is in our world, people don't want to pay for more time and that needs to be okay. And so I only spend an hour with people. What I, what I look to hope or what I hope to look to do in the future is really create a model where there's, there is like a, you know, after session two, session three, we come in, we have some kind of like self input, right? Be that neurological, be that mobility. Like I think a lot of those things are, are autonomous in nature. And if we could teach somebody to do that, they should be coming in about 15, 20 minutes to hit the target areas that we know that we need to do. Then that allows us to already be primed, both nervous system and physically, and then spend some time on the table and then would still hopefully give us about 45 minutes of one-on-one time to go move, right? To take my expertise, to go through movement patterns, to go through change of direction, have like your true one-on-one expertise. And then in an ideal situation, we're still working on some potentially energy system development at the end. We're still working on potentially like maybe your last one or two supersets of, uh, of some strength blocks that we could do. I think in the ideal scenario, that's what we would want, but people don't want to pay for that. And that's really hard to, to command from people in an hour and a half of their time as it is. Everyone wants less and less. They want it to do it faster and faster. So that's where we're at right now. I like to, I like to spend the one-on-one time with people. I think that there is a, there are huge advantages to being able to have somebody's eye, even if you don't have undivided attention. 80% of my attention is way better than 20 minutes of my attention. Yeah, I 100% agree. We have a one-on-one model here as well. And it does seem that sometimes it's even difficult to get people to commit to 60 minutes. Sometimes people want 30, 45, you know, just to rush in and rush out. And I think, you know, showing them the value in what we're doing is, is really key. And I, you alluded to the term therapeutic alliance, and I really like that term and what you're, what you're about with that, with the term therapeutic alliance. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what that looks like with your clients and how that helps with buy-in and with getting the results that you both want out of the care? Yeah. So I'll say like, probably one of the things that shaped my career the most was just being true to myself. And I think throughout my entire career, I think really from a young age, but truly once I started in the sports medicine and athletic training, and there was a lot of like push to conform to this like image, right. And like look a certain way, dress a certain way, act a certain way. And, and I just, there was something inside of me that said like, why can't I be me and also be good at what I do? Like, I don't, I don't understand why, I need to do exactly to a T by the book, exactly look the way you want me to look. Like that doesn't make sense. And I wasn't raised in a household where we like believed in that, right? Like we were very much raised, like be yourself, be unique, be one of one. And so that is the basis of my practice. And it pisses a lot of people off. And I really don't care because it's just like, I only have to make myself happy at the end of the day. So I dress the way that I want. I talk the way that I want. And I look the way that I want when I'm working. And that has never changed the outcomes that I get. So many times in my career, there have been quote unquote issues. Obviously, it doesn't really matter. Here I am. 
with those things. And I think being able to create a unique connection with a client because I am authentically me and it is very evident that I'm authentically me at all times is to me, probably the most important piece of building buy-in in physical therapy. You need to come to me and just know like I'm getting a hundred percent raw Jamie. And what that means is I'm not going to tell you that it's going to take 10 sessions when it's really only going to take five and I'm trying to milk you for money. Like, and if I tell you it's going to be 15 sessions, it's probably going to be 15 sessions. If I tell you that these are the things you need to do, people understand that I'm telling them that for a reason. And I think that there's always been like people ask, like, how do you get buy-in from clients? Like, how do you get people to, to believe in you and, and agree with you? And I'm just myself. Like I'm nobody else. It's very evident if I'm like, if I believe in something and I'm passionate about something. And, and I think, especially in the athletic world, forget like the general population world. Cause I think no, most people don't do that in their world anyway, especially with the presence of social media, everyone's a character. Everyone needs to be this person and nobody really feels like they can act like themselves anymore. But especially in the athletic world, I think athletes are even better at smelling out people's BS and they know when you're being fake. I, I had an experience in my career one time where uh, I was out and one of my clients had to be seen by another therapist. And I came back and he said to me, please never, like, I'm not coming in next time you're not here. I never want to see that person again. And I said, what was the reason at the time? This was like my boss, right? So it's a little awkward. I was like, what was the reason? And I was like, he told me, he said, I could tell that he was trying to be someone that he was not to try to impress me. And I don't like that. And, and I think that's what it comes down to. Like, if we're authentically ourselves, we either connect or we don't. One of the biggest things I actually went, I, I went on a little car rant yesterday. Like, one of the biggest issues that I have is we can't all play nice together because we're not confident in who we are as ourselves. So. There are enough humans, athletes, people for us all to have clients everywhere. There's a deep clinic on every corner, everywhere you go, right? And none of us, we're all doing okay. So the fact that there's like so much need for internal conflict and competition, right? All that tells us is that we're not comfortable creating that one-on-one because we're not comfortable. Like, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. And it's really nice to be able to sense that with people. And I'm, I have no problem telling a client. I don't want to work with you. Like I like I'm done. Like I'll early, I'm not going to say it like that, but like I'll early discharge you. I'll tell you that I think that you should go somewhere else because like my expertise is not aligned with what I think you need. I'll find someone to refer you to. And there's like always professional ways to do that, but I'm not spending my time with someone either. So I think it's just being able to create authentic relationships and like truly enjoy spending time with each other and building buy-in both directions. You're going to tell me you're doing what I asked you to do at home. Like we have to create some kind of relationship where I trust what you're telling me, right? Like I trust that you're actually doing what you said versus uh, yeah, like, okay, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but I don't care. I just need this person to come in and fill my schedule. So I, I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to just human to human connection. I completely agree. And in my experience over the last almost 25 years now as a PT, I think that what people appreciate the most is just that authenticity and being open and honest and genuine. And they're going to know that we genuinely care about them and genuinely want the best results for them, that we're going to do everything possible to make sure that happens. And just building that trust, they become patients for life. They send their neighbors, friends, 
teammates. And that's how I think you organically grow a business in, in the community. And I think you're doing a really good job of that. And that's what we strive to do here as well. And we're not for everyone. We're not going to be a good fit for everyone. And that's okay. And I think just realizing who our ideal clients are and who we can best serve is really key in that therapeutic alliance. Yeah. Another question that I had for you, what is your view on coaching and how can we use coaching to become better sports physical therapists? And how does this benefit our athletes? So I think probably the biggest, well, for many reasons, but one of the biggest kind of career changers that I had was being able to spend time at Exos, not only for the obvious reasons of like the exposure and being able to make connections and, and, and treat high level athletes, right? It was because day in and day out, I had the opportunity to work alongside professionals that were not physical therapists. And I got to listen to how strength coaches do things. They are way better at cueing things. I think every physical therapist should have the opportunity to spend time with a good strength coach, even a decent strength coach. We are not taught, I think like the biggest flaw in the physical therapy framework of education is we're not actually taught anything about exercise prescription or how to move. I think like the line that I always heard in school was, oh, you'll learn it at clin- on your clinical, just absolute bogus, pay all that money to just be told like, yeah, you'll learn it eventually. So I think every PT needs to understand how to cue. I think every physical therapist, regardless of who you work with, needs to also be a coach. Now we are coaching differently, but I'm still coaching you how to get a movement. And I think the better we get at understanding how to coach and understanding humans and how humans interact and how humans relate, we get the outcomes we're looking for. Like I see so many people work with patients and they're like, oh, you like, you should just feel this here. Like, do you feel this here? And they say, no, it's like, all right, well, like keep doing it. No, like if they're not getting the desired outcomes that we're both that they need and you're looking for, then we you need to do a better job at prescribing that exercise or coaching them to get the outcome that you want them to have. So I think being able to understand conceptually and from a non-biomechanical standpoint, how to coach and how to help and how to view somebody through, I, I think it's, it's probably one of the biggest things that we're missing as a profession. I would agree. And don't you think that's where our model comes back into, into play when we're talking about, you know, if we're hiring rehab techs and aides to take our patients through exercises, they don't know how to cue. They don't know how to look for compensations. They just say, oh, yeah, it's OK. Keep doing that. And the physical therapist is, you know, across the room without not even an earshot. I mean, don't you think that's one of the pitfalls of traditional physical therapy? A hundred percent. And what, what, like, what irks me the most. It's like I have, right? Like I have the opportunity to talk to parents on a pretty regular basis prior to them coming into the clinic. And, you know, people, you know, I hear it all the time. I'm going to go for the lower cost option through insurance. And it's hard to have the conversation without sounding a little egotistical, but it's, I've been, I've been in this world for a long time. I've seen the people who I've seen are, there's on, the photos are on the wall. Like I don't need to sit here and tell you who I've worked with. And I say that to the parents, but, you're, you're not working with that person when you go to your mill clinic that has the $20 copay that you get one of five patients an hour. You're, you're not working with the physical therapist. That's just the reality because the insurance model doesn't allow us to get paid enough. So 
it's, I think it's one of the biggest flaws in our profession in that people don't realize that you, the majority of the time you spend in physical therapy is with a rehab tech or a rehab aide, which is most likely a high school kid getting some observation hours or a college kid that is in college looking for a job that wants to be a physical therapist. That is where, at least I know when I worked in those clinical settings, the majority of my patients spent the majority of their time with my techs and my aides, not with me. They got about 10 to 15 minutes of my time in the hour to hour and 20 minutes that they were there. It's, you know, it's like, I hate to say you get what you pay for, but it's, that is the model of our system. And it sucks because people don't realize that until they're too far gone or the worst is then they get better, but that's just because they're not doing anything to aggravate themselves for six to eight weeks. So their like systemic cycle of injury is now into like it's later stages and they're fine. They're feeling better, but they haven't fixed the problem by any means. Right. I mean, you do truly get what you pay for. And I think a lot of our clients are starting to see that. But yeah, convincing the rest of the world, I think, is one of our things that we've been tasked with. And I think, you know, we're, we're a small piece of the puzzle, but I think continuing to provide the type of care that we're providing and showing people there's a better way and there's a way that you can get better, faster and you know, our, what we have on our, our website is, you know, we want to get to you better as quickly and safely as possible. And that's what you and I are both trying to help clients do. And I think the inefficient world of that you just described is not best serving our patients. And it's just a model I could no longer work in. And that's really another reason why I started the practice. So you and I are very aligned on that. And I think it's great what you're doing, you know, for your patients. Another thing I wanted to touch on is what is your view on injury prevention? And what are the keys to injury prevention for athletes? So I actually, I think it's a pretty interesting, it's a pretty interesting model that I'm not, I'm a little surprised that it's like not a thing or as big of a thing as it should be, which is really kind of a stronghold that I've taken with when I talk to people. Usually for us, at least the way that I look at it is, is it's impossible. And I tell people up front, it is 100% impossible for me to prevent an injury. It's nobody can prevent an injury. If they tell you that they can, it's a lie. All that I can do is reduce and mitigate the risk and the potential risk by fixing your biomechanical faults. So let's say, for example, you are a high school soccer player and you're a female high school soccer player, 16 years old, right? Incidence rate of ACL tear is now through the roof because of the sport and the age, right? So your likelihood for tearing your ACL is significantly higher just because of your gender and the sport that you're playing. If we can work on your, uh, you know, we can assess and evaluate and determine that you're actually, again, lacking 15 degrees of internal rotation on both hips, lacking. 10 degrees of hip extension on one hip, lacking four degrees of ankle dorsiflexion on another hip, lacking adequate symmetrical strength on one leg versus another. There's 10% discrepancy one side versus another. Lube up or grease up your movement patterns and allow you to truly be able to understand what a cut, what a rotational crossover movement should feel like and what your body biomechanically should be doing. You are less likely to be put in a situation where your body doesn't know how to handle the forces, therefore gets injured, right? That's all injury is ultimately. The forces externally are greater than the forces internally the body can withstand. 
So the more that we train, the less likely we are going to experience that scenario. Now, you look at what happened with Nick Chubb this past week. That's not preventable. Nobody's going to ever say that they could prevent it, right? Some people online do say they could prevent it. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I th- there's two parts to injury prevention. But for me, it, it's understanding your body and understanding what your specific body needs to be able to potentially reduce the risk. So what we go at it as is exactly that. We evaluate people just like everyone else. You come in and get the same evaluation regardless of what you're coming in for. We have the opportunity to operate a more of a quote unquote maintenance model where we can go touch and go, right? Obviously your frequency does not need to be as often. You don't need to come in once a week. So we're operating at like every three weeks, every four weeks, but it's really, I think half of it is education, which in youth sports now is at like an all time low. People think that they're getting educated and they're actually just like hearing one person's silly opinion. And that's like being spread through everything, which there's a whole nother conversation. But then when people like learn and they see and they understand, they have the ability to make better decisions and in the long term, potentially prevent injury, which I think is half the battle. What objective measures are you using in order to assess with injury prevention? So the, the biggest ones for me are, I would say, we, I have four, we have force plates, we have dynamometry. So the biggest ones I would say are, there's the things that stand out to me are obviously range of motion, any drastic range of motion differences outside of the norms. Now, what most people will say is if it's like, if you're lacking, we need to work on it. I care way more about symmetrical movement because symmetrical movement tells me something. So if you're lacking 15, like if your hip internal rotation on your left is 15 degrees and your right is 15 degrees, I care less about that right now because it's symmetrical. Unilateral um, issues and lack of, lacking of range of motion is where deficiencies is where I care about the most. The other big things that I really, that I look at with regards to injury prevention, we utilized mainly through our force plates is rate of force development and um, deceleration deficiencies. So obviously the majority of injuries occur decelerating, not accelerating. Like the only real like common injury accelerating is hamstring issues, hip flexor issues. Majority of other injuries occur when someone, at least lower body, actually shoulder as well, right? When someone's attempting to decelerate or decelerate their body, their lack or inability to eccentrically control. So that's a big one. And then rate of force development really shows us like how quickly your body can react and create the force that you're asking based on the demands of the activity. So if your rate of force development is like you have range of motions, great. You have your strength, you know, no asymmetry, 1%, 2%, right? Like on paper, you look fantastic. But if your rate of force development is a thousand on your right quad and 400 on your left quad, that's a problem. Like that is probably our best measure of neuromuscular control that we could have out there. So for me, that's like, that's a sign. And I tell people that all the time, like it just means something. And it's probably means we need to work on that. We need to work on your ability to tap in to your, through your neurological system to utilizing that leg, utilizing that quad. Because again, it probably means that your ground reaction times or your ground reaction forces are up and you're spending more time on the ground. It means when you try to plant cut on that leg, they're going to have less of an ability to react than if they were symmetrical. Sure. Completely agree. And that's why I'm so thankful for this technology and what it allows us to do as uh, physical therapists and in guiding our athletes 
to what they need to work on and how they can best optimize their athletic performance. The last thing I wanted to dive into is just the hot topic of load management. You hear it now on ESPN, you hear all the announcers talking about it. It's something that we deal with in the clinic as well with our athletes. So what is your view on how we should be assessing and addressing load management? And what are some of the key factors to load management and sports recovery? Oof, that's a powerful question. It's a, it's um, a, big, it's a big question. <laughs> it's okay, because I love it. So I will say first and foremost, I think people who want to be in the sports world need to understand, like fundamentally need to understand that you cannot and should not rehab or train an athlete the same out of season versus in season. Like it's just, it's not a thing. Like you can't, you shouldn't because the demands on their body are significantly different. I think what's interesting with the load management term is like, it's just a new term, right? But I think if we look at the injury incidence rate, it's also through the roof. So the conversation of load management is like very high right now. We're seeing it all over, you know, all over sports, right? But the same conversation, we're also trying to come up with every single reason why like we're getting injured way too much. And I do unfortunately believe that they go hand in hand. Now, without like going into my theories on load management, I think load management as a whole is necessary. It's fantastic, but it needs to be taken the right way. Like what, what I struggle with the most, perfect example, I'll have NFL guys in their off day on Tuesdays. It's usually like my busiest day with my NFL athletes. When NFL athletes tell me they don't want to come in on Tuesdays, they just want to do nothing. I tell them that's probably the worst decision they could do for their body because there's, there's no ability to not do anything. Like your body needs to be moving. It's a matter of how we're moving. Are we moving strategically? Are we loading appropriately? So when I look at load management, I, I like to say that there's an integral piece that we need to pay attention to with regards to corrective exercise and movement with corrective exercise. To me, that's the importance of load management. Being able to understand that the in-season or in-season demands of an athlete are what they are. We know that. Our goal should be to mitigate the excessive forces that are going into their body, knowing that they need to perform on X day for X duration. So how can we best prepare that athlete to be primed and to have their body moving at the best capacity? So right. I look at it since I brought up NFL athletes play on Sunday. Most of my athletes will come see me on Tuesday and then sat Friday afternoon after they get out early prior to travel. So what I'm doing on Tuesday is very different than I'm going to do on Friday. Friday is going to be very much, it's going to be a lot more slow. It's going to be a lot more parasympathetic. It's going to be a lot more like neural in nature. Like let's just prepare neural pathways. Let's prime neural pathways. Tuesday to people, what they don't want is going to be way more input. If there's an injury, different conversation, but we're going to provide some kind of neural input, some kind of modality input, some hands-on input to the system. And then we need to move. We need to continue to grease those pathways up because more often than not, people when talking about load management are not moving, which ends up causing that like reactive, like I'll use the term stiffness because I hate height, like that reactive stiffness in the body. So very much so, right? In sports, it's at least I believe if you don't use it, you lose it. So we need to make sure we're still getting the range of motion that we want. We need to make sure that we're not just like sitting doing nothing. So it needs to be an active recovery day. And by active recovery, that right, like that doesn't mean 
working out, at least on my, like from my regard, different than a strength coach, right? Like that's not my world. That's not my sandbox. I don't want to play in it. But, and like when you're coming into my sandbox, we need to make sure that we're like moving appropriately. We're activating the muscles that we need, right? Like we're going through some mobility patterns, some corrective exercise patterns based on what the athlete needs. And then we can flip to the passive recovery, which I do think is a huge piece, right? Like, yes, red light is huge. Yes, BFR recovery day is amazing. Yes, shockwave is fantastic. I think like we have tons of different tools to be able to utilize, but I think just utilizing those tools puts us at a disservice to be able to, yeah, turn around and pee. It'd be different if we just finished competing and here we are, we're done. But being able to turn around and compete, like we need to make sure the body is still primed for optimal competition. I completely agree. And we have athletes who come in here who are used to maybe their recovery day is more of a very passive experience. But when they come in here and we do more of an active recovery, they'll say, wow, I feel great you know, at the end of the session. And yes, getting in through some of that movement is uh, so beneficial. And they you really get the buy-in from those athletes because they feel so much better after just doing more reg- a regenerative or active recovery day versus some just passive modalities. I think there's a time and a place for those, but we've really seen um, the feedback be that the athlete um, appreciates and feels a lot better after those types of regenerative active recovery days. Just to wrap up, Jamie, to tie all of this together, it's been a really fantastic conversation. I think that, I think what our audience would like to hear is, you know, if you're an athlete or your coach, what are some of the key pieces of advice that you would give these athletes and coaches out there who are wondering how they can find a rock star physical therapist that they can rely on and trust? I will say there are two pieces, maybe three. The first is always ask for a second opinion. Always make sure you're getting a second opinion. That way we have something to compare to, right? And I think that is a huge for all everything. But what what goes hand in hand with that, which is probably the most important piece is staying educated and making yourself educated. Without being educated, there's no way to be able to know if someone's barking up the wrong tree or not. So being able to, and, and what's hard with the double-edged sword of education means don't read every article on Google, right? Like don't read every blog that's going to give you the answer that you're going to come to someone and say, I read this. I tell people all the time, right? I'm not coming to you and telling you what to do with finances. Don't come to me and tell me what to do with your body, right? Like this is what I do every day. Like you do what you do. I do what I do. That's the best world. So finding places where you can actually get education. I think some of the people who are let's say leading the charge, put out education, have education out there. And it's very evident by the look, the feel and the conversations that the education is at the forefront and is important. And, and those people are usually going to educate you through the process and walk you through that. The other is, and it sucks to say this answer, it's trial and failure. You have to be okay getting some bad quality care until you find someone good. But at the same time, you don't have like it's your body. You don't have to feel obligated to continue working with someone the same way in a relationship. We don't have to feel obligated to stay in a relationship, right? You don't feel obligated to stay with a a team because, you know, that club team is not working for you. Your health should be exactly the same just because I've heard so many people say, oh, we committed to a physical therapist for three times a week for 12 weeks. And I was like, and? Like, what, what are they going to, you know, like yell at you if you can? So I think those are probably the three biggest takeaways to being able to find somebody that can help you long term. 
That's fantastic advice. And just to piggyback on that, I would also say to physical therapists out there, if you are stuck in a situation that you know that you're not giving optimal care and you're frustrated by a PT mold type setting and those your clients are not getting the type of care that you wish to provide, you're not stuck there. You have choices and there's a different and a better way out there. And I would encourage you not to feel like you have to stay in that for any reason. And the sooner that you get out and start practicing in a different environment, the more fulfilling your career will be and the, the better you'll be able to serve your clients. I quit my first job after three months. I think people, people are feel for all of those things. So yeah, first job, I said, see ya, I'm out. And I think, you know, you have to be willing to take some risks in, in your life and put yourself on the line sometimes. But I think that you and I both can attest to the fact that when you do that, that you'll be rewarded and so much more fulfilled and you'll be in a profession that you can stay in for a long period of time and serve your clients well. Jamie, just thank you so much for the time that you spent with us today. You're amazing. You're doing, you're rocking it. I can't wait to see how your practice grows in the next few years. Um, congratulations on, on your son. Um, I know that's a very exciting <laughs> part of your life. And that's, that's the best part is our family. And, and again, this is another reason why we do what we do. It's, it's all for our, it's for our family. It's for, for our family, for our clients and the type of model that we, of care that we provide, we're able to do that again, serve people well for a long period of time and live the quality and type of life that we want to live as individuals as well. So thank you so much. I hope everyone's enjoyed the time spent with us today. I know that this is a very valuable conversation that needs to be had in the PT world, the sports physical therapy world, and hopefully we can have more conversations in the future, Jamie. And again, thank you so much. It's an honor to have you today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nina. I had fun. Thanks. I appreciate it.